Pastor Howard was speaking at this conference uh, and as an eyewitness in attendance, uh, I will let you know that he made himself known. Uh, before he gave his seminar on the history of African-American worship, uh, the, the MC said, and I quote, Howard's going to talk about whatever he wants to talk about. It's probably going to be good. Which I think is an, an apt description of the man whom God has called to lead us in this church. So I just wanted to share that story. Uh, when Pastor Howard asked me, uh, I wasn't going to tell you it was on Tuesday. I was going to make it seem like this had been planning for months. Uh, but when he asked me to preach, I scrambled to figure out what text to preach on. And then it dawned on me. Pastor Howard's preaching through the story of Joseph. Why don't I preach on the story of Judah, his brother? Because for a long time, the story of Judah has captivated me. If you follow, sorry, because within the story of Judah is the story of the gospel. If you follow Judah through the story of Joseph, you see a redemption that is only possible by the grace of God. Judah turns from a criminal mastermind to a lying, cheating father, to a sexual miscreant, to a sacrificial leader, faithful to both God and family. So as not to step on Howard's toes, I'm only going to be preaching from one episode of Judah's rich and dynamic life, and that's what is found in Genesis 38. As you heard the text read, you may realize, some of you for the first time, that the Bible is not all warm and fuzzy stories about good people doing good things and being blessed because of their goodness. This story in particular is one of the grittiest most obscene and offensive stories in the Bible. You're going to have a hard time finding this story in any children's Bible, right? This one is the one that they gladly skip over with the little drawings. Mm -hmm. You're more likely to find this story on late night cable. The, uh, what is it, Lifetime. You're more, this is where you're going to find this kind of story. Yet in the midst of all this sex and deception, I'm convinced that the gospel breaks through. Genesis 37 tells the story of Joseph's brothers selling him into slavery. Chapter 39 tells of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. So chapter 38 really seems to interrupt the regularly scheduled programming to tell us a story that is admittedly interesting and entertaining, but seems to have nothing to do with the story that we've been paying attention to. The Joseph Chronicles. So now, we ask the question, why is this story here? I mean, in a broader sense, why is this story in the Bible? If the Bible is such a holy book, because the Bible is such a holy book, we could have done without this X-rated tale of the bedroom misadventures of the family of Judah. But more importantly, we need to ask, why is this story where it is in the overall tale of Joseph? On the surface, it appears to have just been dropped in because it had to go somewhere. But actually, chronologically, it seems to make sense. If Joseph is in Egypt for about 20 years before he sees his brothers, it makes sense that now is the time to tell about what Judah has been up to. 
But more than that, the story placed where it is adds suspense to an already suspenseful story. Think of it like a TV show, one of those soap opera dramas that ends with Joseph being sold off and Jacob being confronted with his own mortality as he comes to terms with the supposed death of his son. As the credits roll, the narrator tells us to tune in next time to find out what happens to Joseph. Only we do tune in next time and find that the focus has shifted. There's no mention of Joseph. The questions about what's happened to Joseph remain unanswered. Instead, we find Judah's story to be the focus of this whole episode. Now, if we want to find out what happens to Joseph, we have to tune again next week. We've been sucked in. We're hooked. So the Judah story acts as a distraction, an interruption, a non-sequitur, an uncomfortable intermission, related but not entirely relevant. But this story is also more than just a backdoor pilot, like when Denise Huxtable went away to college, (laughs) leaving the Cosby show for a different world. (laughs) Or when the Jeffersons left Archie Bunker's uh, Brooklyn, or Queens, Queens, wherever, and they moved on up to the east side, to the apartment in the sky, the deluxe apartment in the sky. Sorry. (laughs) This spinoff story of Judah is connected to the Joseph story because it is different. So out of place, so counterintuitive, so wrong. Judah's sexual indiscretions make him a foil for Joseph's purity. Judah's lack of faith and honesty make him a perfect contrast for Joseph's never-failing trust that God is with him. Judah's behavior also connects him back to his father, Jacob. Like father, like son, the deceiver is inevitably deceived. So this truly isn't a random story inserted into the greater Joseph tale, but an intricately woven masterpiece that samples the beats of the past and introduces beats sampled in the future. But I'll offer one more reason why this story is here. Possibly No, not even possibly. The most important reason why the story is here. You see, it's from this family, this man, Judah, that Jesus Christ descended. Judah knocked up his daughter-in-law thinking she was a prostitute. And it was through an illegitimate son that the promised king was to come. Judah's great-grandchildren were heirs to a promise that was made to his great-grandfather. And it's through Judah that we have the great King David, and through David that we have and the even greater King, Jesus Christ. This is no doubt an embarrassing part of Jesus' family tree, but it's there, and God uses it. I'm a bit of a genealogy buff myself, uh, which makes me really cool. Um, Right. But what would TV shows like Who Do You Think You Are and uh, Finding Your Roots that trace the family trees of celebrities, because those are the only people's family trees we seem to care about. Uh, Genealogy is actually not as nerdy as it once was, so I keep telling myself. Uh, But often, when you dig up the past, you find things that you wish weren't there. I could go on for days about my family. There is no changing the past. But Jesus can redeem it. 
And so we look at this text, I want, as we look at this text, I want you to keep in mind all these things, that there is suspense, there is connectivity, and there is a series of embarrassing events, events that only Jesus could make sense of. Those are not my three points, so if you try to follow three points, I'm sorry. Um, anyway, the story begins. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite named Hira. At some point, shortly after he and his brothers sold Joseph and fabricated the lie that he had been killed, he parted ways with his family and went to live among strangers. He met an Adulamite who is someone from the city of Adulam named Hira. Adulam was a Canaanite fortress. And Judah's relocation to a Canaanite city tells us something. Though Judah and his brothers were the rightful owners of the land that they, they inhabited, they weren't the only people living there. The Canaanites had been there for hundreds, maybe even thousands of years. And this made, tricky for the, this made things tricky for the patriarchs of Israel. Because they were never truly part of the people of the land. God had promised to give Abraham land and family, but this promise wasn't to be completely fulfilled for hundreds of years, even after Judah is dead. Therefore, there was an implied racism, for lack of a better word, between the early Hebrews and the Canaanites. Abraham makes sure that Isaac doesn't marry a Canaanite girl. Isaac himself is grieved by the fact that his son Esau takes not one but two Canaanite wives. Therefore, Judah's association with Hira, the Canaanite, and his marriage, as we'll see, to another Canaanite, are troubling. But what's more troubling is the language used here of his arrival in Canaan. He's left his brothers, and though we're not told why, we can assume that he could not bear the guilt of watching his father grieve the death of a son that he knew was not dead. He probably couldn't bear the guilt of his brothers, who were constantly reminding him that it was, after all, his idea to sell Joseph. So instead of having to stare at that empty chair at the, at, uh, at the dinner table, for the rest of his life, he takes his leave and goes down from his brothers. His family lived uh, in the upper hills of Canaan, and so it, geographically this makes sense. He would have had to go down from the hills into the plain. But more than a geographical descent, there is a moral descent. Whereas Joseph is said to have been brought down to Egypt, Judah goes down of his own accord. But more troubling than that, and that is the language used here of turning aside. He turned aside to a certain Adulamite. Literally, he stretched himself towards this man. This stretching is a strange word and speaks of being pulled off course, distracted, tricked, trapped, getting sidetracked and overwhelmed. Like going to the mall or Best Buy or for Pastor Howard Costco, you never just get what you came for, but are constantly stretching towards other things that catch your eye. 
This is a theme running through this story. Judah does not live by faith, but by sight. Whatever catches his eye is pleasing. And he goes after it. But finally, we'll see it's what he sees that proves him guilty. So Judah, in his sidetracked, turning aside, stretching forth in Canaan, saw a Canaanite girl, and without any delay, the story turns to sex and babies. He took a wife from among the very people he was called to be set apart from, and in rapid succession, they have three kids, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. The text also adds a puzzling note at at the end of verse five that Judah was in Chazib, when his wife gave birth to Shelah. Now, the English makes it seem that Judah was some deadbeat dad. He had abandoned his wife and gone to some other city while she was uh, in Agilom. That's what I've read in commentaries. I'm not entirely convinced that that's the case because the Hebrew is not clear. What is clear is that the name of the city, Chazib, means deception which is such a common theme in this story that it must be important. This fact is foreshadowing as well as calling back to the major role of deception in Judah's life. The man who deceived his father with a bloody coat will later deceive his daughter-in-law and even later be deceived by said daughter-in-law should no doubt be at home in a city called Lies. Now the story fast-forwards again many years. When Ur has reached adulthood, Judah, as was the custom of the time, picks a wife for Ur. We're not told if Tamar was a Canaanite, but never mind if Tamar is an unworthy bride for Ur, because Ur, it seems, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. We do not know what made Ur wicked, but only that his wickedness caused him to die. Verse 8. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. Here we have one of those tricky situations that don't carry over into our modern day conception of family. In the ancient world, it was held that if a man died without children, it was his brother's duty to carry on his name, to father children for him, to take his wife. We've already seen a few weeks back at the beginning of this series how how important it was for a man to have children to carry on his name. If one wife couldn't give you children, she could give you her servant. It's one of the reasons why Jacob ends up having 12 kids, 13 kids by four women. But also, children are so important that if your brother died childless, it was your duty to make children for him. However, Onan knew that the children would not carry on his name, but his older brothers. Maybe Onan knew how wicked Ur really was and didn't want to fill his quiver. So Onan used an early form of birth control and prevented Tamar, his his dead brother's wife, from ever having the chance of conceiving. And the Bible tells us that Onan Onan was essentially no different than Ur. And because of his wickedness, he too died childless. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he, that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and re- remained in her father's house. 
The English of this text doesn't really paint a clear picture, paint the real picture. The Hebrew paints a portrait of a man who has lost two sons and does not see their mutual wickedness as the cause. Instead, he sees Tamar as the common denominator. Ur died because of Tamar. Onan, too, died because of Tamar. Far be it from me to let Shelah die because of this woman that I can't get rid of. In fact, it's paranoia of Judah borders on insanity because in the Hebrew, he's talking to himself. After he tells Tamar to run run along home, he says to himself, what if Shelah dies too? He does not see the wickedness of Ur and Onan, which was likely a family trait, but only sees this widow twice over, this husband killer. So, he lies. He tells her what she, that when Shayla's old enough, she can come back. But until then, she needs to go on and get. Don't call me, I'll call you. And thus ends the first part of the story. The rise and fall of the house of Judah. Where he once had three sons, he now only has one. And the fear of losing his last heir makes him overprotective. But the story is far from over. Fast forward again, excuse me, fast forward again, verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. Unlike Jacob, who refused to be comforted. Sorry. Got a soundtrack. Unlike Jacob, who refuses to be comforted, Judas seems more resilient, willing to rebound. He takes up with his old buddy Hira again and sets out for the annual sheep shearing festival. And though this doesn't sound like much fun to us, unless you were in Future Farmers of America in high school, uh, a sheep shearing festival does not sound like a throwdown. This actually was a party in ancient Canaan. Sure, there was the primary purpose of the sheep getting their hair did, cutting their, off their winter coat, and marking the beginning of spring. But there was also food and wine and music and prostitutes. This was a great festival of fertility with great sacrifices to foreign gods. Because if the foreign gods were happy, the spring would bring rain and crops and new flocks. And what better way to celebrate than to join in on all that festivity, I mean all that fertility, and have a party. This is Mardi Gras Canaan style. News travels fast apparently because Tamar had received word that Judah was on the prowl. And that Shayla was grown, and that for some reason she was still stuck living at home, living with her parents as a sad widow. So she devises a plan. If she can't have Shayla, she'll take Judah down. Judah, who had deceived her, was about to fall victim to her own game of deception, proving that she really does belong in this family. She takes off her widow wear and sets herself in a strategic position along the road to the festival to trap Judah. She covers herself using the same word that's used when Judah covered Joseph's coat with goat's blood. Her deception 
is in the same line as Judah's and exactly what he deserves. So Judah comes traveling along, apparently all too ready for the festivities that await, and sees Tamar incognito and propositions her. Here, too, he stretches himself towards her. He deviates from his path, goes off course, and finds himself in the arms of a strange yet familiar woman. And this proposition is far from romantic. It's actually more than we get when he meets his wife. Basically, he says, Say, girl. And she says, How much you got? He says, I'll send you a, a newly shorn goat next week. She says, hey, big spender. I'm going to need collateral. So he says, name it. It's yours. And she says, give me your signet, cord, and staff. Basically a credit card, social security number, and driver's license. And he says, okie dokie. So time passes and she gets pregnant. Nothing else is said except that she got up, went home, and returned to being a widow. As a side note, I need to point out Judah's complete plunge into the deep end of the world that surrounds him. Despite having a brother who slept with his stepmother and a father who had four wives, what Judah has done is completely unthinkable in his family dynamic. He, he sleeps with a perfect stranger in a strange land who he may assume is part of some perverted cult within a false religion. He's turned his back on God. And there's no, no explanation for this other than pure, unadulterated desire. He's a grown man, and he's going to do what he wants. Needless to say, there are repercussions. Just you wait. Once Judah gets home from his festivities... He, he seeks to make good on his pledge and get his stuff back. So he sends out Hira, his old buddy, to do his dirty work. But Hira turns up empty-handed. Interestingly, verses 21 and 22 tell us that Hira spends his days looking for a cult prostitute. While Judah himself thought that the disguised Tamar was nothing more than a regular run-of-the-mill prostitute. And this is a big difference. Judah approaches Tamar as a regular streetwalker, standing on the street corner, while Hira is on the quest for some high-class escort. It's likely that Judah neglected to tell his friend that his standards were so low. But in any event, Judah decides to let the whole thing pass, and he even justifies himself. Not only does he say, let's not, let's not take this further unless we become the laughing stock, but then he says, I mean, I kept up my end of the bargain. She just never showed back up. The loss of the signet, cord, and staff really wasn't that big of a deal because it wouldn't be of any use to Tamar except if she used it as evidence against him. If it's used as evidence against him, Judah has no out. But then for as long as Judah can remember, he hasn't so much as thought about Tamar, this black widow, this stain on the name of his family, this husband killer. 
And once news arrives that she's pregnant, yet still unmarried, Judah point, puts on his daddy pants and says, burn her. Just as Ur and Onan were wicked in the eyes of God, Tamar here is wicked in the eyes of Judah. He says, set her on fire. She sinned. Therefore, kill her in the most agonizing way possible. And there's no hesitation, no grief, no thought. Just do this. Burn her alive. But as if she had planned this whole thing out, she sends Judah's pledge, his signet cord and staff before her with a message attached. Please identify these. These are the exact words that Judah and his brothers use when they hold up that bloody coat before Jacob. Please identify who this is, whose this is. Do you know who this belongs to? In verse 26, then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. Here we have Judah's admission of guilt. With his eyes, he, finally, he has finally seen the truth. And this is the biblical, biblical equivalent of the Jerry Springer, Maury Povich, Montel Williams paternity test drama. Judah, you are the father. <laughs> paternity test may lie. But when the girl gives you your stuff back, there's no way out of it. When the time for her labor came, when the time for her, for her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in the labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, "This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, "What a breach you've made for yourself, therefore his name was Perez, which means breach." Or breaking forth, bursting through, get out of my way, Perez. After this, his brother came out with the scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called Zerah. And unfortunately, no one cares about Zerah. So what do we do with this story? We need to unpack some things a little before we can call it a day. But the overarching message that I want you to see, if you only remember one thing from this sermon, is this. God chooses and uses who he wants, how he wants, and when he wants. If we look at this story in isolation, we see nothing but perversion and lies and a whole bunch of bad biblical role models. But if we consider this story and its place in the light of the rest of the biblical story, we see that God's going to do his thing. And there ain't nothing we can do to stop before this, Judah hatched a plan to sell his brother into slavery, make a buck, and let somebody else kill him. He created a family tragedy whose shadow would not lift, be lifted for another 20 years. In this story, we see a man who's only looking out for number one. Losing two sons and a wife sends him into a downward spiral of self-gratification, looking for love in all the wrong places. But after this, we see a changed Judah. A man who's willing to put his own life on the line for the greater good of his brothers. 
We see a reformation and a transformation from a man who lived by faith to a man who, sorry, from a man who lived by sight to a man who lives by faith. And not just any old faith, but faith in a living God who never fails. On Jacob's deathbed, he blesses Judah above all his brothers. And while Joseph gets the birthright, the double blessing, Judah is told that his family will bow down to him and praise him. From Judah would come kings to rule over his people, the whole house of Jacob. And that that scepter would never depart. Judah is a lion, and from him will come a greater lion who will rule his people and save them. But what we need to see is that these promises don't find their fulfillment for another 2,000 years. The final puzzle piece is not laid until that first Easter when the true king, the true lion of Judah, defeats death and reigns as king forever. 2,000 years in the waiting. We live in a microwave culture. Staring impatiently, nose against the glass as our Hot Pockets, Bagel Bites, and Trader Joe's organic turkey hot dogs spin around that fast food turntable. But sometimes God cooks low and slow. And the best things are cooked low and slow. Sometimes the finished product is worth stirring the pot. Sometimes it's worth us giving up ourselves to set it and forget it. God chooses and uses who he wants, how he wants, and when he wants. When he wants. You can't rush God. Sometimes God takes hours or days or months or even 2,000 years to bring about the promises and blessings that he has set about. And sometimes, most times, in fact, we can't even begin to grasp the ways that God is going to bless us and change us through the very things that make us cry out to him. Judah, as far as Genesis 38 is concerned, was a terrible human being. I mean, he's among the worst of the worst. He's a criminal mastermind, a liar, a thug, a deserter, a terrible son, a worse father, a manipulator, and a cheat. He's a scrub. And this doesn't even include his sex life. In our text, he's abandoned his family, abandoned his God, turned away, stretched himself away from the path he should have been on, been silent in the face of wickedness, failed to assume his role as leader, lied in order to protect himself, neglected those in need, refused love and comfort to someone who, who was hurting in his own household, sought love and comfort in the things of this world, saw refuge in false gods, was a hypocrite and a potential murderer. Judah is the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst. Judah's sons were no doubt wicked in the eyes of God only because they learned it from daddy. But here's the rub. You're Judah. Every time you fail, fall short, or freak out, you show your genetic defect. Just as Ur and Onan were wicked because their father was wicked, you too, without Jesus, are wicked in the eyes of God. As we say in my family, you got it honest. You lie, you cheat, you steal. 
You argue and gossip because you think that only you know the whole truth of every situation. You neglect those who need love and then complain when you're neglected. You murder in your heart if not in your words. For out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. You call for others to be exposed, put to death or trial or dismissal or unemployment while you keep your deepest, darkest sins, your unqualifying secrets hidden. But most importantly, you turn away from God. You stretch yourself away from the things of God and find your worth, identity, and satisfaction in the things of this world. Your job, your marriage, your education, your race, your political views, your theological views, your status among friends, family, and co-workers. We all find our sense of satisfaction and worth in things that will never truly satisfy or make us worthy. We willingly stretch ourselves away from God in order to make ourselves God. In order to make ourselves the God of our lives and the God of other people's lives. But there is a message of hope in this painful truth. God's not surprised. He's not shocked by our sins. He knows he knew it all along. We're messed up, but God is going to use our messed upness to bring about his purposes. He uses our messed upness to bring about forgiveness, and he enters into our messed upness to bring about reformation and transformation. God uses every single failure of Judah to bring about an illegitimate son born in a foreign land and from this unwanted child as opposed to the overprotective daddy's boy of Shelah, he brings about the king of kings to save us from our own fear of failure. If Jesus came from the line of Joseph, he'd have no way to relate to us. If Jesus came from a perfect family, he'd have nothing in common with every one of us who come from messed up families. Jesus wasn't born in a palace. He was born in an animal outhouse. He wasn't born in an upper middle class family from the burbs, but to an unwed mother from the trailer park. Jesus entered into our mess and our messed upness. And because of that, there ain't nothing you can throw at him that he can't handle. You see, the very fact that God uses Judah means that God can use you. No matter how bad your life situations may be, no matter how many bad decisions have led you to where you are today, and no matter how bad your track record, you are not beyond God's reach. God can use you, and if he wants to, there ain't nothing you can do to stop him. I've said it from this pulpit before. Hopefully I'll say it again, but listen, baby. Ain't no mountain high. Ain't no valley low. Ain't no river wide enough to keep God from getting to you. And from this text, we see a glimpse of how he does it. Judah gives Tamar his signet cord and staff, like I said before, the ancient equivalent of his credit card, social security number, and driver's license. Because Judah desires to have her, he gives her his identity, his status. This is, in one way, the same thing that Pharaoh gave to Joseph. 
Joseph gave Pharaohs the keys to the kingdom. Jesus, in a much holier and heavenlier way, gives us his status and his identity. Because he died on the cross. In this story, we aren't just Judah, but we're also Tamar, or Judah's perception of what Tamar was. Nothing but a bunch of prostitutes. Selling ourselves for whatever makes it work, whatever makes the ends meet, and whatever gets us what we want. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus, God in the flesh, gives his people a new identity, a new status in spite of ourselves because he loves us and wants us to be with him. Jesus comes to us in the midst of our sinfulness and says, I want to be with you. I want to take away your sin and give you my righteousness. And you haven't done anything to deserve it. Judah declares Tamar to be righteous. He who is in a position to kill or let live uses his authority to proclaim, to officially speak of this woman in terms of righteousness. First of all, what does he know about righteousness? But that's beside the point. The beauty of this is that she's not righteous because of her actions, but because of her inherited faith, her married into faith. She'd rather be an unwed mother in a society that's willing to kill such women than to save her own life. Her actions, as messed up as they are, speak multitudes of this woman's faith. Whether or not she knew what God was doing, she acted on faith as opposed to Judah, who acted on sight. But here's where the gospel really takes off, stretches away from this story. Not only do we have a renewed status with Christ in spite of our sin, we are declared righteous. Not because of our faithfulness to God, but because of God's faithfulness to us. Jesus comes from a long line of sinners, and he entered into the sinfulness of this world, which goes to show that though God hates our sin, he loves him some sinners. God chooses and uses who he wants, how he wants, and when he wants. And he chose Judah at his lowest to bring about a family line and a promise that would last for 2,000 years. And if he can use Judah, he can use you. Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the illegitimate son of God, whose mother was cast off from family and friends and forced to give birth in an animal outhouse, whose own brothers called him crazy, whose own disciples told him to shut up, whose own people sought to kill him and eventually succeeded, this Jesus, who sees us as the prostitutes we are, was willing to die in our place, was willing to be burned alive, so to speak, for us. This Jesus died on the cross, lay dead in his tomb, and defeated the hold of death upon him and rose again. This man came to life in an animal outhouse and came to life again in a cemetery. This Jesus has entered into our world 
And he ain't going to stop entering into our world until he's changed you. He's given you his status, his identity. He's declared you righteous, even though you aren't. This Jesus is more than that confrontational friend or that confrontational you who always gets up, as Charles says, in everybody's business. This Jesus is all up in your messed upness. There's nothing that he doesn't have his hand in. And this Jesus can make you and break you and change you. And this Jesus is the same God who chooses and uses who he wants, how he wants, and when he wants. Don't fight it. Run to it. Your messed up story has got nothing on Jesus. Don't try to impress him or wait until you're better. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Just believe. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the very fact that you have got this under control.